They were going to fine people $2,500 for each violation. What happened was PayPal noticed a lot of people started to close their account. Uh, and PayPal the next day rescinded that policy. And, and the, the point here is that the market uh, <laughs> will have a lot to say about what a private organization can, uh, can do and can't do. And, and that's what the UCLA school would, would acknowledge that even in social issues, companies have to respond to their, to their consumers. Welcome back to another episode of the Essential Scholars Podcast. I'm Rosemary Fike, and today we're going to continue our conversation about the UCLA School of Economics. Joining me once again is David Henderson, an Emeritus Professor of Economics with the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, a research fellow with the Hoover Institution, and a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. But this time we also have Stephen Globerman, uh, he's a resident scholar in the Addington Chair in Measurement at the Fraser Institute, as well as a professor emeritus at, the, at Western Washington University. And both of these wonderful guests are our co-authors of the Essential UCLA School of Economics book. So welcome, and thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. Thanks, Rosemary. Thank you. And today, I thought we would focus a little bit on some of the policy issues that are taking place in the modern world and see how we can use that UCLA lens to understand some, some modern conversations. So in your view, either one of you, um, what are some of the big picture policy issues that you would find the UCLA framework useful to understand? Well, I, I'll take a shot at it first. I think there are, there are two or three that come to mind. One is is regulation and and what should be the status of regulation, uh, both uh, uh, social and economic regulation. Uh, secondly, industrial organization or the structure of industries and firms, should firms be allowed to merge? Under what conditions should they not be allowed to merge? Uh, and third, I, I would say the, the actual governance of, of organizations. How are they managed? Uh, how are people rewarded? Should the government have anything to say about how private sector organizations run their business? And those are three that come to mind. Anything for you, David? I think those are, are very good. I think anything involving property rights, because property rights we talked last time are such a great way of giving people incentives to do things that are not just valuable to them, but valuable more generally. And so to the extent possible, expand property rights where maybe we didn't have them before. I think we talked briefly last time about how maybe you could put RFID chips in whales and so on and track them. So, hey, that's my whale. Don't harpoon it, you know, kind of thing. Uh, so that's one promising area, I think. So I would love to talk a little bit about, you know, regulatory questions, um, you know, maybe even speak to the work of Sam Peltzman. Um, so the Peltzman effect is something that if people study regulation, they might be very familiar with it. Um, can you think of any kind of 
recent policy issues that have suffered from the Peltzman effect, maybe some examples from the pandemic or or any any examples of the Peltzman effect that um, are happening more recently? Yeah, I know I've read this. I don't know. I don't think anyone's done a rigorous study yet, but that often when people wore masks during the pandemic, they took risks they wouldn't have taken. They got closer to people, uh, that kind of thing. And then we even saw at times, I remember seeing various politicians speaking and they go to cough and they pull off their mask to cough. And that's not exact. That's not the Peltzman effect literally, but it's the Peltzman effect in spirit. The idea is I'm so protected, I can kind of forget about what protected me and just go ahead and, and take that risk or in fact, impose that risk on others. That's a great yes, example. Good, it was a good example. I was, I was going to say it was the vaccines once people got vaccinated. Uh, they became, in their own mind, at least many, they were bulletproof. And so all of the other so-called precautions that they were meant to take went by the wayside. Right, right. So <clears throat> what, because Steve, you mentioned, uh, you know, one of the big topics that come to mind for you is that topic of regulation. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about, you know, specifically um, you know, what that UCLA lens can help us understand about regulation. Right. Well, I mean, the, the early history of regulation was, was a very naive uh, perspective that the regulator was a, a social welfare maximizer, that they were there to correct problems in the marketplace and would do the consumer good by their actions. And, and George Stigler, who wasn't at UCLA, is near as Chicago, advanced uh, the, the thinking away from that very naive view to a view that uh, regulators really were there to protect producers, incumbent producers. And the explanation was that you have a small number of producers with a lot at stake and you have a large number of consumers, no one individual consumer with much at stake. And so the regulatory uh, process was gamed in, in, in effect in favor of producers. Sam Peltzman, who was actually, uh, uh, I was his research assistant at UCLA, uh, I think made a big advancement in that line of thinking by saying, look, we see lots of regulation where producers are not the beneficiaries of regulation. Uh, that there really is, a, in some sense, a marketplace for regulation, that people bid for regulation. And it's not just the producers, it's consumer groups, it's intermediaries. And at the margin, and that's what, where people's influence comes in, at the margin, and he goes on to talk about what makes one participant more effective than another. But the important, I think the important insight that Sam had was that what really characterizes regulation is not just a transfer from consumers to producers, although that's often the case, but transfers across consumers and across producers. And, and, and that gets extended with people like George Hilton, who we speak about in the book, uh, to say that, look, um, you can't have cross subsidies in a competitive market because cross subsidies mean some participants in the market are paying above marginal costs, other are paying below. And where there are these uh, gaps where, where you have what economists would call economic rent being earned, 
you're going to have the entry into the marketplace and entry destroys that cross subsidy because the entry is systematically going to be in those markets which are providing the cross subsidy. So George Hilton and others uh, argue that part and parcel of regulation is entry prevention. And, and that's a very noticeable characteristic of regulation. And I had lots of experience with that because I participated uh, as an expert witness in a number of hearings in Canada when the issue was, should we deregulate pricing in the long distance sector, which was a big subsidizer of local service. And of course, the phone companies said, look, if you if you allow competition in this sector, we can no longer subsidize local service. And so there was a blockade, essentially a regulatory blockade of competition for quite a while, which Hilton argues really is a is a major cost to efficiency. Uh, ultimately, entry is going to happen. But in the meanwhile, you've got inefficient entry or blocked entry. Um, and uh, it would be better to <laughs> it would be better to have the entry take place uh, in an economic way in, up front. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of reminds me of of public choice. There's definitely some some relationship. This idea of regulatory capture. Um, you have a great quote in the book from George Hilton that regulation is the worst possible organization as an industry, um, one to which all of the alternatives are preferable. Um, that's some pretty powerful anti-regulation sentiments. Um, so how do we, it, given that we're in kind of a political climate where regulation seems to be the default it seems like an inevitability an inevitability um how do we minimize that how what can we do to to change the incentives to have less of that happening well i'll take a shot at that uh i mean you, you it's 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 very much in line with uh, how do we how do we try and uh reduce uh, government deficits, government spending. You, you need some type of political institution, hopefully a, a, a law that is not easily changed by the parliament, which says, look, uh, here's the limits of regulation. And, and, and actually we have experience with that. Uh, the province of BC, uh, the government, which was a conservative government, uh, uh, basically implemented a, a law which said, uh, you know, for every regulation that you put in place, you have to you have to drop two, uh, and that was somewhat similar to uh, a, to uh, an executive action that Donald Trump took when he was president. So, uh, I, I think that's certainly one way to try and mitigate the problem we discussed, and the other is just to educate. People, I mean, if 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 someone is paying across subsidy, they should know about it, uh, and and maybe they they be motivated to take action and participate in the market that Sam talked about. Yeah, that's that's really well said. I want to add one other thing that we often think, or certainly I often think, that our constitution, the U.S. Constitution, is really broken down. It's not that effective. There's a lot to that criticism, but certain parts of it have held up well. One is that state governments cannot regulate interstate commerce, 
And that's just a key part of the Constitution. One of the big cases involved Vanderbilt when he was in his 20s and he was helping someone uh, illegally uh, cut prices in, in moving people on ships from New Jersey to New York. And that's interstate commerce. And Fulton was the bad guy who said, you know, you, you can't do this. And, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And, and that famous justice, Justice Marshall, was the one who wrote the opinion saying, no, no, this is interstate commerce. The New York legislature cannot regulate it. That's held up pretty well. And that was almost 200 years ago. So there are some things like that, and it would just be nice to enforce them more and, and have more such restrictions, restrictions on what government can do. Right. And I just add, just as a final uh, uh, addendum to that, that there are certainly restrictions on regulatory takings. Uh, and and then, of course, it becomes a matter of court interpretation of when when the pub, when it's a public interest or when it's a regulatory taking. So can you explain uh, to listeners what regulatory taking means? I'm not sure that all listeners would be familiar with that. David, you want to oh, take a sure. uh, The idea. So one of the ones I'm most familiar with where they seem to be getting away with it is saying to someone who owns land, you can't use your land in the use you wanted. And so it immediately reduces the value of land compared to what the person expected when he or she bought it. And so that's a taking. Now, unfortunately, in my understanding of the situation in the United States, the governments are getting away with that a lot. Uh, Richard Epstein wrote a book on takings in which he challenged that. And he said, we should be enforcing that. That really is a taking. And that by and large, I would say has not been that successful. But it could be. In other words, it could be the next step in the legal revolution to realize how much of a, a taking of wealth that is. So I want to switch gears for a moment and, and talk about maybe some of the unusual ways that we can apply property rights to, to situations that um, we typically think of as, as conflicts that necessitate some sort of government action. Um, so last episode, we talked a little bit about you know, education and how we can view that as a property rights issue. Um, can we think about things like, I don't know, like cancel culture? So I think about cancel culture. Um, can we think about that, maybe frame that in that property rights framework? So you know, if people have ownership over their businesses and they receive this stream of revenue, um, other people can vote with their dollars and choose or not to choose, not choose to or choose not to uh, patronize businesses that they might, you know, be engaging in, in either business practices or have personal beliefs that they don't agree with. Um, is that maybe along the lines of, of, you know, the UCLA framework of adapting property rights to, to understanding these, these kind of points of conflict? Is that consistent? It could be. I'm thinking, I mean, one of the basic freedoms is freedom of association, mm -hmm. freedom to choose whom to associate with. So certainly if someone doesn't want to buy something from a, from a company because of that company's behavior in any dimension, 
that's completely legitimate for the person not to. The one concern I have is that when we've looked at cases, okay, so take the, the whole Hunter Biden thing during the 2020 election. Well, it turns out that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg admitted in an interview that the FBI had come to him and said, please don't do certain things that, you know, might be Russian, Russian created like and and he i don't know if he named the hunter biden thing but zuckerberg said he his mind immediately went to the hunter biden thing so he started canceling people or at least not allowing them to talk about hunter biden's laptop whereas we now know that was a completely legitimate issue so in other words when the government gets his messy hand in there that's where it can go wrong but if the government were completely out of it and so people say, I want to associate with this firm and not with that firm, whether they be as investors, as consumers or as workers, that works. It's a kind of a sorting and it would work. I think it would work. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. And actually, there's a, a, an example, a very contemporary example. It's, it's actually an example from this week where PayPal announced that it was going to fine people who use the platform, if they violate, quote unquote, PayPal's um, uh, standards for, uh, for uh, interacting with the platform, they were going to fine people $2,500 for each violation. What happened was PayPal noticed a lot of people started to close their account. Uh, and PayPal the next day rescinded that policy. And, and the, the point here is that the market uh, will have a lot to say uh, about what a private organization can, uh, can do and can't do. And, and that's what the UCLA school would, would acknowledge that even in social issues, companies have to respond to their, to their consumers. Right. Right. I think that's such an interesting aspect of, of markets that people don't often talk about that we can kind of express our social beliefs through our market transactions. Um, I remember last year when Texas passed um, Senate Bill 8, which kind of took abortion off the table for, for most women in Texas, that a lot of companies immediately responded. I Because I live in Texas and I got a lot of emails from like Uber and Lyft and organizations that were saying things like, we would never sell your information um, in a way that would be harmful to you. Um, or if our employees need access to this reproductive care, we will pay for them to, to go out of the state. Um, so, so that's kind of responding. Not, it's not a cancel culture type of response, but it's more of a, um, you know, continue to use our services because we actually care about some of the things that you care about. Um, right. so I always think that that's such an interesting way that, you know, the market process can help us express our, our beliefs. Right. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask about it, in a property rights type of issue, um, one of the things we run into is that, you know, some groups of people might say, I don't like how they're using their property. And I don't think 
that people, even though it has nothing to do with me, has nothing to do with me, it's not affecting my life, but the mere thought that somebody somewhere would be using their property in a way that I don't like, you know, how do we avoid these type of like meddlesome preferences undermining property rights? Because it seems like there's a real push for, for many people to do that. David, it's a hard one. <laughs> You're right. There's a lot of, I think it was Mencken who said that, uh, um, uh, uh, was it a Puritan as someone who, who has the haunting fear that somewhere someone might be happy, you know, something like that. And so, yeah, there are people who get upset just at the idea of other people having certain preferences and that's a tough one. So do I know what to do about it as an individual? I do. I, I don't do that. And, and I try to support people who don't. I, I went to the last baseball game of the season that the Oakland A's had. And there was this young man near me who caught a foul ball. We had pretty good seats. And there were these people in front of whom, in front of him who were with this older man who was in a wheelchair and they started yelling at him. He ought to give the ball to the older man. And I'd been talking to this young woman beside me and I thought I'd at least make a point a little public. And I said, it's really interesting how at ease people are in telling other people what to do with their property. And she kind of grinned and, and got it. So again, it's a kind of an educational thing. The easiest thing in the world to do is not to put your own property at stake, but to tell other people what they should do with theirs. And just as a citizen, I kind of tend to speak out against that. Yeah, I, I think the certainly uh, Alshin was very clear on this point that if, if there is no physical intrusion on other people's property, um, then then the owner of that uh, uh, is entitled to use the property the way they want. I would just add one other point. I mean, if there really is a contention about how property rights are being used, if, if it's if it's a relatively small number of people contending, um, one can have private bargaining that can actually result in the property being used in the most efficient way. And of course, Demsets has talked a lot about uh, both creating and transferring property rights uh, in a way to promote economic efficiency. So if, if, if my welfare is really much improved by David not doing something, but David has a legal right to do it. I certainly can go to David and say, what's it worth to you to stop doing it? And we can bargain about it. That's a good point. If I want to raise another example, I go to my cottage in Canada every summer. And a few summers ago, I went out with a neighbor and his two nephews who I really care for. These two young guys, just teenagers, really, really nice kids. And they wanted to climb this cliff and jump into the water. It was about a 30 foot jump. And, and he, they did due diligence. They, they used this meter, this, this thing to make sure there wasn't this big ledge sticking up where, you know, and, but I said to them, I'll pay you each 50 US dollars if you don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and they did it. So I didn't pay them. But anyway, that was my, that's how much I cared that I could just see this small probability of something going really wrong. You know, but so that that's something we can do. And, and they said no. And, and they had a great time. But uh, but yeah, that's that when it's a small number situation, you can ha have those kinds of offers. 
Yeah, I often think about meddlesome preferences um, at, and people who want to act on them and act on them through the political process as being a pretty big threat to individual liberty. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, another thing I kind of want to bring up related to, to property rights. Um, so property, it's very important. Um, and, you know, economists who study economic development, you know, property rights are essentially a prerequisite to any kind of human flourishing. So they emerge, you know, they kind of evolve in unique ways, depending on the different social contexts. Um, so what can be done, if anything, about you know, either creating property rights where they don't currently exist or modifying property rights if, um, you know, they are, they emerged in a, in a way that kind of is not growth enhancing. So, so if your property rights are bad, what do we do about that? Well, I don't know if this is a good example because I, I thought I had a good example until you said the bad part. <laughs> uh, so in California, we have this huge issue where, where, where Steve and I both live. Steve lives here what, half time, right? Uh, we had this huge issue with water. Now, the Central Valley farmers get water and they have the right, the property right in it as long as they use it. And so they use it in uses that can be worth as little as $200 per acre foot. The cities and even the small city I'm in are starving for water. We've got rationing right now. And we are looking at options that cost as much as three or $4,000 per acre foot. And so one clear cut way I think would be to give those farmers clear cut ownership of the water. Just say, How, what were you using historically? We'll give you that. Or if we're a little low, we'll give you 80% of that or whatever. And it's then yours in perpetuity to sell to whoever. And instead of farmers uh, farming walnuts, farmers would be farming water, essentially. They could make more money selling water, and everyone's better off. So there's one where I think property rights could work. And this I'm a little hazy on, but I think I remember reading a few years ago that Australia had the same kind of mixed up system of property rights and they had a drought for so long that they just the, the reality forced them to come up with real property rights in water and they went from someone having to plan out whether I'm going to buy water two months from now and they don't really know whether they're going to want to to someone being able to get on a cell phone and buy water in a few seconds and so there's I think where they moved to a more of a property rights system and it worked well. So eventually you're kind of forced to confront that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think maybe implicit in your question was where do property rights come from in the first place? And uh, uh, Demsitz, in, in, as we discuss in the book, really talks about how property rights are formed in the marketplace and, and, and are conditioned by the benefits and costs of individuals agreeing to have private property. Uh, so um, Demsitz talks about um, uh, uh, indigenous people in Canada who were, um, who were uh, hunting uh, and uh, would, would, would set up areas where there was exclusive, essentially exclusive hunting rights for, for different parts of that nation. 
uh, and uh, that that happens spontaneously. And I think the the uh, the standard kind of caution is when the government is allocating property rights or rearranging property rights, they should at least pay some attention to efficiency. And that's kind of what David was saying with with respect to water rights. If, if the regulator is going to say, okay, you have the right to so much water from this particular body of water, they should be sure that in 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 assigning that right, that it's an efficient or an efficient assignment, or at least allow essentially recontracting. So that, as David said, if you can resell it, if there's a more valuable use somewhere else in the system. So some of the work of the UCLA school offers a critique of behavioral economics and specifically kind of the popularity of, of nudges or libertarian paternalism. Um, so I would love to hear a bit about, you know, how, you know, Alchin's work or the work of other UCLA economists would suggest, you know, these nudge units that are part of, of certain regulatory structures. I know Britain has a nudge unit. I know the behavioral economists have been very influential in kind of trying to design um, regulation for us. You know, what, what are these efforts going to be successful? Um, what, what are the problems that might be obvious to a UCLA economist, but maybe not obvious to other? Well, I think one of the biggest is a property rights problem or an incentive problem, at least, which is if you're the head of a nudge unit or if you're one of the people in the nudge unit making these decisions, what's your incentive to get it right? And, and they've never really answered that. I've written a number of critiques and book reviews of both Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler who, who pushed this. And in fact, in one of Sunstein's book, books, he talks about how people didn't notice when they were told to look for something in a, in a particular video, they didn't notice the 800-pound gorilla, the literal 800-pound gorilla that walked across in the video. And I said, well, you know what? There's an 800-pound gorilla that Cass Sunstein hasn't noticed, namely the government, that, that somehow they're going to get it right. And he's never really answered the question, why do they have the right incentives or how do they have the right incentives? Because they don't. Yes, and I, I think also uh, to, to get back to Alshin, um, uh, uh, the the, uh, the critique of the behavioralists is that most people have less than full information, or they they they're they're not able to process the information that they have, and therefore someone more knowledgeable, the nudger, should make the decision. And and Alshin's point is that economic behavior, efficient economic behavior, doesn't necessarily require people to be fully informed or even even perfectly rational in a calculating sense that that if you don't if you don't uh, uh, pursue your own self-interests, you're going to suffer and leave the marketplace and and those who are successful set an example for others and uh, and rather than the nudger showing the way, it's the marketplace that shows the way. Right, right. I also, you know, the discussion a little bit earlier of regulatory capture and you know, David's comments made me wonder uh, how, how frequently do nudge units get captured? Um, 
Yeah. There seems to be room for that. I think there definitely is. And and I guess there are two kinds of capture. One is the more narrow, you know, I'm going to do it in to, 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 you know, to feather my own nest or to help this particular company that's paying me off. And that can happen. But I think the more typical capture, and I'm just guessing, but I think the more typical capture, capture is simple, simply that the person, the nudger, has way too much, too, too much belief in his or her own ability to make good decisions for other people. That's the kind of the capture that, and they, and, and that many, many people like having power over other people. And so the kind of people who might want to be part of a nudge unit are people who like to nudge people. And so that can be a different kind of, a kind of a more subtle kind of capture. Well, I think also there's a, there's an indirect capture in that uh, the government usually announces what its agenda is. And, and if you're a nudger and you want to get hired, <laughs> you're, you're going to probably favor the policy that, that the government wants at the time. You know, if, if it's automatic assignment to a pension fund uh, or even more now an assignment to an ESG, yeah. uh intensive pension fund well you're the nudger who wants to get hired on that that's that you're going to see a lot of advantages in that in that position right right what insights might the ucla ucla school offer uh to those who care about social justice type of issues. So we talked a little bit about how you can vote with our dollars and express those types of preferences. But last episode, we talked a bit about, you know, discrimination. And so I would love, you know, social justice seems to be something that most of my students really, really care about. Yeah. How can we use the UCLA framework to address those things? Well, I want to mention one when I got to UCLA in 1972, I had to TA a class that used university economics. And so I worked my way through every question at the back of each chapter. And by the way, I never got one student asked me any of those questions, but it was a huge learning experience for me. And I remember one of the things that was quite noticeable in Elchin and Allen, and it was, I'm positive this was more Elchin's influence than Allen's, is the importance of competition and the importance of what he called open markets. And so if you have competition, or if you have open markets, it's much easier for people who start out without much to get somewhere. So we now have 800 occupations in the United States in which at least one state government prevents entry unless you take a course, pay a fee, get a license, all those kinds of things. And that's up, and, and so, approximately 25% of the workforce is in those occupations, up from 5% in the 1950s. And so one of the most famous cases, and the Institute for Justice took this on, was cornrow braiding, where you had women, typically young black women, braiding people and, and making a decent living. And then the cosmetology society comes along and says, you've got to take a course in order to do that. What's one of the main things you have to learn in the course? How to handle chemicals. What's something you never use in cornrow braiding? Chemicals. And so the idea was it just, it was, 
it was a way, whether intentional or otherwise, of blocking off an avenue for people who were trying to make it, trying to get, you know, improve them, their own economically economic livelihood. And so those kinds of things come kind of naturally to someone who got his or her education at UCLA. Don't block people from get, making themselves better off. Yeah, I think that that's that's a very good example, and 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 uh, um, even uh, areas that uh, like rent control or minimum wages uh, are examples of policies where they're ostensibly defended on grounds that it's helping uh, poor people, uh, people of color, uh, and in fact, the evidence suggests just the opposite that it hurts them. Uh, so I think the broader message is the one that David mentioned, is that competitive markets are a wonderful institution for people who want to work their way up the, the, the economic and social ladder. Right. So this is just, you know, asking your opinions. Um, social mobility, I know in, in the U.S. there's this idea that social mobility has stagnated. Do you attribute that to things like occupational licensing? I attribute some of it to that and possibly a lot of it. Um, this is not a UCLA thing, but, but since you asked a question, I want to answer it with the best information I have. Uh, Phil Graham, who used to be a senator, along with two other people, has a book that I think comes out this month. And he had an op-ed on it in the Wall Street Journal last month, but it just blew me away. It was looking at the bottom three quintiles, which is 60% of the households in the United States, and showing how little better off people in the middle quint in the in the middle quintile were than people in the bottom quintile when you look at overall income, including all the government welfare programs. And so there's not a huge gain for people getting jobs. So people in the in the middle quintile were a little better off by a thousand or two thousand per year, which is not a lot of money. And they were working a lot. People in the bottom quintile, hardly any of them were working and they were getting roughly the same income. And so as Graham, Graham and his co-authors pointed out, that's actually too much equality. That's There's not enough of a gain from working because we've got such an extensive welfare state certainly compared to what I'd thought before reading that. So those implicit uh, marginal tax rates that you get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, let's see, because we're almost out of time. So I want to ask you guys, um, one thing I love to ask is what are some of the biggest misconceptions or misinterpretations that people have of the UCLA school. If there's like one thing you want to set the record straight on, um, what would it be? Well, I'll take a shot at it. David probably wants to weigh in as well. I, I would say that the caricature of the UCLA school is that the market is perfect. You know, just free markets are the answer to everything. And, and the UCLA school was very clear in saying that, no, there, there are lots of issues and if you want to call it problems, real world problems in any market, uh, uh, transactions costs, for example, you can't make transactions without using resources. 
Um, what the UCLA school says is, no, there, there is no perfect world. Uh, there's no nirvana. Uh, and, uh, and if you want to say something intelligent about one set of arrangements versus another, you have to compare them in terms of their, their impacts. And, uh, and, and also, I think Alshin was very clear in saying, look, efficiency may not be the only social goal. And, and to the extent that it is not, then the property right arrangement should be different than if efficiency was the main social goal. So I, I think that, that, that to me is the main caricature of the, of the UCLA school. I think that's a really good example. There's one that I have in mind that's closely related to that, and that is that the UCLA school is an ideological school, that they kind of start with the, conclu the conclusion they want, namely that we should have free markets, and then structure the argument and the evidence, and by the way, structuring the evidence would be even worse, <laughs> uh, to get to that conclusion. And that's one thing I saw that wasn't true. And I remember my second year at UCLA, I was invited to a, an event in Washington put on by something called the Ripon Society. It was part of the Republican thing. And I remember we were learning all this great stuff in industrial organization up front. The Demsets kind of, hey, big firms have high profit rates because they're doing well, not because they have monopoly power. And I thought, I wonder if my professors are telling me the whole story. And I went and presented some of their ideas. And there was this economist from the University of Michigan named William Shepard. And, and he was one of the kind of the bet noirs. He was one of the people whose work they often criticized. And he got to comment on my presentation. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. I'm going to learn all the things that they didn't tell me because they were hiding them. And all Shepard did was attack me as a person. And it was like, all right, I think I did learn some good stuff at UCLA. And there's not like this big hidden thing that they've been hiding from me. So yeah, I think I went there as a libertarian. There's no doubt about it. I am a libertarian still, but I'm a libertarian who will admit good arguments against libertarianism. <laughs> I think that that's a criticism that gets hurled at any school of thought that has a kind of free market policy conclusion. Um, the Austrians get referred to as, as ideological as well. Um, but, you know, if the evidence suggests that the market solutions work well, then it's not ideological. Right, right. <laughs> Right, and, and they only have to work better than the next best alternative. Ah, bingo, bingo, yes. <laughs> and that's the Nirvana fallacy. That's, that's the that's Dem sets his point about the Nirvana approach. Don't compare the, the uh, reality of a market with the ideal of a government regulation. Compare the reality of a market with the reality of government regulation. Well, I think that that is an excellent message to to end on. Um, uh, you guys have a great list of additional readings and resources at the end of the book, but is there any other you know popular resources, blogs, podcasts, anything that you would recommend for for listeners who are interested in learning more? Well, one thing, I don't think we have this in the book, and I'm not going to kind of look it up online and figure <laughs> it in real time. But um, so, so I remember Alvin Elshin told me the following story, that Paul Hain, 
who put together a book called The Economic Way of Thinking, came to Armin before he put it together, the first edition, and said, you know, I love university economics, but it's too complicated for my undergraduate students. I want to make something that's simpler. And he said, do I have your permission? And Elchin said, what do you mean you have my permission? It's a free country. You want to write a book, write a book. And so he did. He put together the economic way of thinking. And I have found it a more reader-friendly way of teaching students in their first economics course than university economics was. University economics looks simple, but it's almost PhD level in a sense, even though it's in words, whereas the economic way of thinking is kind of Elchin made simple. Elchin and Allen made simple. And I love that book. I have uh, several students or several classes of mine. I will uh, have them read certain excerpts of that book. Yeah, so it's excellent. Yeah. yeah. Steve, um, do you have other things to suggest? Well, you know, David, I was going to say that uh, uh, read any, read anything, read The Economist magazine, even read The New York Times. I he hesitate to say it, but, uh, but, but read it critically, yeah. uh, hopefully after reading our book, and, <laughs> and, and, and challenge yourself to say, what's wrong with this? What, what am I reading that really needs to be questioned? And that, that's the, one of the main messages of the UCLA school is that, uh, you know, the tools that you get are usable in everyday life. And, 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 and so that, that really is a challenge for, for students and, and actually for anyone who participates in public life. I did actually just think of one more, which mm -hmm. is my book with one of my star students, Charlie Hooper, Making Great Decisions in Business and Life. We apply economics in every chapter. And I, I, I would have been able to write my parts of the book if I had not studied at UCLA. Well, thank you both so much for talking with me today. I learned a lot and I hope our listeners did too. You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to essentialscholars.org to learn more. See you next time. Thank you.